Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. It's the year 2027. Infertility threatens mankind with extinction, and the last child born has perished. How will Earth's population survive? Here today to talk about Alfonso Caron's Children of Men is Executive Director of Feminists for Liberty, Kat Murdy. Hi, thanks for having me. Research Fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and host of Libertarianism.org's own Free Thoughts podcast, Trevor Burris. Thanks for having me. And finally, the Cicero devotee, intellectual history editor at Libertarianism.org and the host of the Portraits of Liberty podcast, Paul Meany. Thanks, Emil. Children of Men uh, is a science fiction film, ostensibly, but it is not the flashy, epic space opera of Star Wars or the gritty cyberpunk dystopia of Blade Runner. The film seems more like a reflection of society today in a not-too-distant future. How does that manifest in the film? And what do you think that says and and is trying to do differently than other science fiction films? It's interesting from an art design standpoint because, well, the movie was made in 2006, but now it's only six years away from, from 2021. But the movie very much wants to be familiar. It does not want to be strange. This is a basic kind of decision that you make when you do science fiction, but just speculative literature in general or, or movies or whatever. Do you want it to be familiar? Or do you want it to be strange? And the, the goal here, just take the cars. If you look at the cars, I mean, they look like the, they kind of, I mean, given that it was 20, like 2006, they kind of look like the cars today. Um, they're not trying to make wildly different cars. They're not trying to make wildly different billboards, the ads, the propaganda, everything is extremely familiar, which is ex- very, very important for the movie. The movie does not work if it does not seem like our world. Uh, and that's extremely important for the themes of the movie. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, as I was watching it, the only thing that stood out to me was um, there's this one scene where they're in that art gallery slash house and Alex, it, that kid is playing some sort of computer game on this weird, uh, what's clearly meant to be um, what becomes our modern smartphone. But that one was literally the only part of the film that looked sci-fi to me. The rest of it just looked like it could be something happening today anywhere in the world. And that was the purpose. Um, Karan, the director, said that um, his goal, he made the decision to make it like a newsreel. He wanted it to look realistic. He didn't want it to be fictional. Um, his his whole purpose was to have something uh, that looked like it was actually happening. He called his movie um, an essay, a diagnosis of, the state of things at the time and said that the whole takeaway that he wanted people to get from it was that the future isn't someplace ahead of us. We're living in the future at this moment. And that is absolutely what I got just watching this film um, in 2021, the parallels, right? Like here is this world after a major pandemic Um, There's a lot of issues with anti-immigration. There's a lot of nationalism. There's a weird focus on fertility. Um, Of course, like in a more sci-fi type 
way than we're seeing now. But I mean, how many headlines have we seen over the past year, year and a half about whether we're having a baby boom, um, whether women aren't having enough babies? I mean, this has been one of the major stories of the last year, right? Uh, and then, of course, there's refugee crisis. There's wars going on. I mean, this, it felt real and it did because it was meant to feel real. I was going to say, I think it's a really good point because Alfonso Cuaron originally didn't want to take the script. And then after 9-11, he decided he would. And so it kind of, the world became more like this. He had his ear to the ground politically. And the beginning of the film, it says the Homeland Security Bill has been passed after eight years. And like, this is just after the Patriot Act passed. And so it really is life imitates art in a lot of ways. And people are kind of like, did, was Curon just really lucky and predicted everything? No, he actually was observing everything around him and saw where, where the winds were going. Yeah, there's this Abu Ghraib type scene too, um, as uh, towards the end of the movie, as they're trying to break into the refugee camp. And literally, the only thing that made it look different than the photos we see of Abu Ghraib was that they were, um, you know, they were wearing their, every, the detainees were wearing their everyday clothes and had black bags. So there's less orange in it. That was the only major difference that we saw. Yeah, Kat, you bring up, you bring up a good point of like a, a lot of the different, elements that are in play during the movie and i i was kind of hoping that for the audience we could kind of unpuzzle the like political dynamics that are at play throughout the movie because there's like a bunch of different groups there's the fishes who like are fighting for equal rights for every immigrant and then there's a lot of like nationalism elements so can we kind of explain like the politics at play or like the political realm that's going on in this film yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, so, you know, looking at this as a libertarian, there's definitely a lot in that movie that spoke to me. Um, but I wanted to see kind of where the director was coming from. And, um, you know, I first saw this movie, I saw it uh, online on the internet. I did not buy the DVD, but apparently um, on the film's DVD release, they have a, a the famous Marxist philosopher uh, Sisek, who's uh, famous for saying it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And so uh, it, that was interesting to me that they included him talking about late capitalism as one of the bonus features on the DVD, because I didn't really see the movie as a strong criticism of capitalism at all. And so I kind of dug into that a little bit more. It was quite interesting because Koran himself, he was a Marxist growing up. And when he was talking about Children of Men in 2016, so this is about 10 years after the release of the movie, he talks about how um, the idea, the, the ideas behind the movie was to talk about how his generation had been tainted by the ideology. And he said that ideologies are mental tools of separation. And so I, I really saw that with um, with the fishes as well. Like the fishes, you know, when they start, I mean, they're clearly some sort of leftist revolutionary group. There's uh, there's allusions to George Orwell throughout, uh, who himself had these sort of like he was sort of a leftist revolutionary uh, uh, liberationist who uh, himself had these moments uh, of realizing that maybe some of these politics weren't going the way that he wanted them to. Um, and so the fish is like, it seems as if they're a liberating force. And then you find out that they're kind of like, not that great either. They're, they're just as much a part of this corrupt 
power system. They're their own state. They are terrorists in their own right. And, you know, even though they have this great goal, the fishes are at war with the British government until they recognize human rights for every immigrant. They're bombing people, they're murdering people, they're setting up all of these things. And honestly, what are the human rights of uh, Key, the refugee that they essentially decide to take hostage and they want to use her for their political goals, right? So I think um, there's this really smart message in there about, you know, there's no one ideology that is without fault. I really like that point because P.D. James originally released the book in 1992, which is the exact same year as Francis Fukuyama released End of History. And I think originally in the book, the characters are all kind of like these high-level government bureaucrats. And it's much more about the higher classes. But Curon's version, Curon didn't actually really read the book and didn't really like it. He liked the premise, but didn't really want to adapt the book. So it's really much his own creation, a lot of the characters. And in the movie, the characters, it's all about ideology. And they're all using, you often hear in debates about abortion, uh, pro-choice activists will often say, pro-life people just see women as vessels. And in the film, lots of people just see Key as a vessel for their own aims, for their own goals. They're using her as a means to an end. I think the political dynamic to Natalie's question it breaks down to one issue, which is what happens when people don't think there's a future. And if politics is a, uh, if you break it down to its core and it's sort of just this Hobbesian war in, you know, in suits and voting where people are trying to take their share via some sort of voting mechanism. Um, what's really going on is that, Think about what's going, what's happening in a future where there's no children. First of all, your productive capacity is pre- is predicted to go down. Um, if you just even take today, so like there are some concern in, in Western democracy developed developed world that the birth rate is going to create a problem, and it will because the birth rate's going down, and there are huge demands from the older generation in terms of pensions and other things that the younger generation is simply not going to be big enough to fulfill. And that's going to create extreme struggles of, of just over resources and resources here. Let's just say is, is just cash, but it could be anything else. Um, and I think essentially the, the politics is about people retrenching into their groups when they see the pie shrinking. So we are used to, Believing that the, that the pie will get bigger, that our children will be better off than, than we were. Um, but this is flipping that around. What are the, what are the politics of the shrinking pie and the politics of no hope? I think that this ties back to the realism of this movie, because again, like, first off, it's such a, such a loop for me to realize that this movie is almost 20 years old now, because I feel like I just saw it. I mean, I can't just see it now, but um, I, I feel like when I first saw it, I just saw it. It feels so real. And part of that is this, right? Like, we, um, as libertarians, for the most part, we do see a future that is brighter than uh, the current future. But I don't think that's true of a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world. And I think that that might be tied to this rising anti-globalism, pro-nationalism, populism that we're just seeing uh, coming up all around the world, starting really around the period that this movie was released. It was the early 2000s that we, we start to see these trends, and they're really coming to fruition now. It's, it's because people feel that 
what was promised to them, their slice of the pie is not going to come around. Yeah. And that, I think it's, it's there with this sort of exogenous factor of, of the fertility aspect. And I mean, basically, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things you see in the movie is you see like the burning cows, like the agriculture, um, like, like take that group. I, I thought about, you know, what are the interest groups that are not portrayed? So farmers, uh, agriculture, like imagine these people who, who have a lot of political clout and have for a very long time seeing, you know, the demand for their products go down every year. Um, like, so they, they made 1000 more cows than they need and they have nothing to do with them except for burn them. And so what are they going to do? They're going to go to the government and say, which they have done before. This is what farmers do. We need a guarantee of the price of beef, uh, because we, you know, it was really good 10 years ago and now it's not so good. And think about every group doing that. It's just this massive self-interested, no hope politics that is fascinating to watch. So that's interesting to me, the way that you saw the cows uh, in that and other scenes. Because I also, for me, I was looking at the cows as a symbol of motherhood. And so the burning cows is the fact that, you know, the the infertility problem, the fact that there hasn't been a child born for uh, 18 and a half years at this point, um, at the beginning of the movie. And, you know, I, the cows sort of form that same thing in the scene where Key reveals that she's pregnant to Thea, the protagonist. She's in that cow barn, um, which on the one hand is supposed to be um, a biblical illusion. But on the other hand, like cows are a symbol of fertility, of motherhood. Um, and, you know, she even talks about how the cows, um, she talks about in factory farming, how a lot of times uh, there, uh, cows, uh, quote unquote, extra udders will be cut off to fit, uh, the machinery and how, uh, the cows, they're the symbol of motherhood, the symbol of their own motherhood is abrogated to fit into the state. It, it comes back to that vessel message. So that's actually what I read from it. So it's interesting to me to hear how you talk about it from this economic standpoint that, uh, you know, I also agree with, I didn't read into it. One thing I think about without, a world that hope is that it's awfully banal. Like it's very business as usual. And I think all of us kind of from coronavirus now have a bit of an idea of this, that like the end of the world is often quite boring and it's very, just they're going along as business as usual. And there hasn't really been much of a change or revolution in some ways, but in some ways they're just enforcing rules that no longer even matter. That's why I think is so interesting is that they're so tired ideologically. They can't even break out of their own imagination at this point. They can't think of a better way to police Britain or a better way to research fertility. They just enforce these ridiculously authoritarian laws. And it's different from the book, because in the book, the problem was that no one wanted to rule anymore, that people thought it was too much responsibility and that everything was going away anyway. But in the movie, people are governing too enthusiastically. This, this no hope ideology, I think, is really evident and I think is worth exploring from the protagonist's perspective, which is Theo, who we haven't really talked about a whole lot. But Clive Owen's character, Theo, who we follow, serves as an sort of as an audience member stand in. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we are meant to be Theo, but we are meant to perceive the world not just through Theo's eyes, but through his ears specifically. So there's a lot of critical acclaim for the sound design and mixing of this movie and how the film takes place not 
really from his point of view, but from what a lot of like sound designers will call the point of audition. So while the camera is not his eyes, the sound design and mix is meant to very much evoke what Theo is hearing. And you hear that and the transition that sort of mirrors his perception of the world throughout the entire movie. So you start off in the very beginning in that scene where they're getting the news about baby Diego and his passing. um, And he goes outside to spike his coffee that he's got. And there's no score. There's just uh, cars and rickshaws going outside and the sort of murmur of crowds and shuffle of feet. And then there is the explosion of the bomb going off. And he, it induces this tinnitus that becomes uh, almost like a, a musical leitmotif throughout the movie to symbolize a lot of things, mostly death or loss, which Julianne Moore's character, Julian, specifically calls out and says, it is the swan song of your... Um, like your ears trying to recreate the pathways, but they're dying out. So we, we see the transition of Theo from this living in this soundscape where there's no score, there's very little emotion or attempt to sort of change that. There is no score. It is only diegetic sound. The only music you hear for the first half or so of the movie is from sources in uh, Michael Caine's character's car or playing in a coffee shop or just the soundscapes of being outside. And then as it transitions and goes on, as Clive Owen's character begins to become more invested in the journey of believing in key, being the hope that the world has and taking her you know, to try and get to the coast, suddenly you get these pieces of music that are integrating religious imagery and chants from Christian words and, and, and Buddhism and Hinduism. And, and you see where he comes from when he is talking to Michael Caine about the human project uh, as, as they're smoking the strawberry cough in his house. And he, they're talking about the human project, and he says, um, even if they discovered the cure for in- infertility, it doesn't matter. It's too late. The world went to shit. It was too late before the infertility thing happened. And so you can see his complacency uh, early on, and as it transitions and he gains this hope, you literally are hearing it impact the way his emotions change throughout the movie. And I think that is really, really important because it's it's showing where Theo came from and where he can go if he finds this hope. But we're only getting it from his perspective. I, I actually want to offer a parallel quote here because I think that um, Theo's perspective in that scene uh, was really telling, but I think in a later scene where Theo's brought, um, I, I forget her name, Miriam and Key to back to that house as a safe house after they find out that the fish's safe house is actually not so safe, it's essentially a trap. Um, you hear Michael Caine's character explaining what happened with Theo, and he says uh, something along the lines of, Jillian and Theo met by chance, but they were there because of what they believe in, their faith, and they wanted to change the world, and their faith kept them together. But by chance, Dylan was born, and Theo's faith was lost out of chance. And so Julian and Theo had been married. Uh, they had a child. This child died in the flu epidemic uh, that's happened. 
forever ago. Dylan would have been Key's age. And he's, of course, uh, this. So, I mean, like, that's the loss of hope for Theo. His marriage breaks down. He lost his child. Um, his mother uh, seems uh, is currently in dementia. She's staring frequently at a photo of um, Julian and Theo uh, with uh, Dylan, the toddler, before he passed away. Um, so there is all of that, but then there's also this other aspect of, okay, um, he never actually totally loses hope, right? He still, he wants to participate in this. You can tell that he's still in love with Julian in a certain way. You can tell that he still like has some feelings about, uh, all of this. That's why he, he believes that, uh, you know, that's why he even tries to help key, um, even before he knows that she's pregnant, there is some hope there. I think it's almost like a studied indifference in this horrible world. And so it's, it's interesting to see his path because he, it's sort of, in a way, he's moving in a more hopeful direction. But in another way, he's also, it's always been there. It's just uh, sort of under the surface because of what's happening around him. I think something really interesting about the film is the way Theo learns to become a better person. Like he'd lost hope and then he kind of regains confidence and throws himself back into the fray for some cause that means something to him. I think a lot of people in the film, they spend their time fighting for things or being very aggressive and violent. But I think a lot of the best people in the film are the characters that sacrifice for something. So Jasper sacrifices himself to save some time for the group. Miriam does the same thing to get the, some of the border guards off the bus who are harassing Key. And then Theo, in the end, sacrifices himself as well. And even Julianne Moore's character, uh, her name was Julian as well, actually. <laughs> even she did it to an extent. All the characters that are quite cruel and nasty in the film, they can only channel their passion for something through aggression. They can never imagine sacrificing themselves, only others. I think that's, maybe that's just me, but I think it's a really interesting part of the film. Especially when everyone's trying to use key for something. Yeah, Alfonso Cuaron has specifically said that like it is it is about the dangers of ideology for uh, for at least part of it as well, I believe. Right, and it's the characters who are less ideological. It's the characters who are really acting out of more of a personal faith belief or a, a personal connection that do the really human things, and we even see that. Um, when they're in the refugee camp, when there's that big bombing scene, all of these kinds of things, the, the moments of humanity are when people take a step back from that ideology and just react, uh, just react to what they're seeing in this amazing thing that there's been a baby. I think it's massively important that the main character is a man. And I, I think if you look at the title of the film, Children of Men, and that it uses men in this context, whereas I think there's multiple children, so to speak, in this movie. Um, one of the things that you're seeing is what happens to men when the, one of the biggest civilizing forces of men, which is fatherhood, uh, looking to the future, goes away. Uh, so many of the problems that have emerged are just sort of men. If you think about the scene with the army uh, near the end of the movie, it's just all these men uh, who are fighting each other and with tanks and bombs and everything. And over this child uh, and and the, the lack of male, like, I guess, responsibility 
is a is I think a huge part of this, and I think it's sort of distilled into Theo that like Theo is a man who lost his child, has no hope, has sort of turned to his most primal self until he is given the opportunity to do something uh, for the future in that way. And I think overall, like that part is really interesting, and you and you see it in particular uh, when Luke. Uh, the Chiwetelegia for character like finds out that the child is that the child is a girl, um, assuming that it was going to be a man. But like, I think that that's the that's that's the interesting thing about when I watch it again. That really struck me over and over again was was the the, the title and and what men are doing in this film, um, and what Theo in particular goes through like as a man uh, was I think a huge theme in this. Yeah, so that's actually, I'm glad you brought up the gender of the baby, because um, I think that was such a huge point as well. Um, everyone assumed by default that this baby would be a boy. There's there's literally no reason for them to have done this. Uh, Ki is, of course, like secretly pregnant in a world in which she didn't even know that she was pregnant for a while because she'd never seen a pregnancy before. And, uh, you, you know, like there's this poignant moment towards the end where, uh, Theo shows her how to burp the baby because again, she's never seen a baby. She's never seen a pregnancy. Um, you know, she's eight months pregnant in the movie. I'm currently eight months pregnant. So that was, uh, very interesting <laughs> and relatable just <laughs> watching the scene, right? Kat is so the- dedicated to the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No, but it was, it was very relatable for me. But uh, the, this, uh, the gender of the baby was very interesting because there's this awe at having a baby and then finding out the baby is female, um, is just like this increased level of awe. And, um, you know, when you think about it, this is a world of infertility. The, the entire human race is dying out and they're dying out in one part because they're murdering each other, but they're also dying out because they're incapable of reproduction. And, um, in, in a world like this, um, a female baby represents so much greater of hope than a male baby because uh, a female baby in 18 years or so, she could be having a child of her own as well. Uh, whereas um, a male baby, that that chance would be so reduced. And I think like it's hope, but it also brings us back to that vessel message, right? Like key overwhelmingly over and over and over again is treated like a resource. She talks about how the cows, the symbol of motherhood are treated um, like a, again, like a a resource who can be adapted to be pushed into a certain mold. um, And certainly raises a question about what will happen with the future of this child as well. Yeah. That's a really, it's an interesting point too, because um, for most of human history, children uh, women have been have been regarded to some extent as a resource yes um and that's for a variety of reasons mostly actually lack of economic development um but it it is interesting when you uh, if you ever do like a, a mind game and you think about making a ship to go to a different planet so you have to choose like a thousand people to go to a different planet and when you're thinking about women it's hard to not think about them as a resource in that context. Meaning like if you're saying, do you want a 60 year old female scientist or an 18 year old woman uh, for this generation ship that will go to a different planet? Like 
that's when you start thinking about women as a resource and like and and one of the things I think that has caused men to become horrible in this movie is that they don't think about women that way anymore and, and, and not thinking about them positively in this way. So the, the men just become horrible, horrible things. Well, that's interesting because certainly men thinking of women in that way has also caused them to do many. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, no, both, both sides. Yes. Yeah. It's not, it's not a solution to that, but yes, absolutely. The original book was written by a woman, PD James. And in the book it's, the reason for infertility is that men's sperm count has dropped to zero. But in the movie, all of a sudden, it's because women are having miscarriages. So it kind of shifts it. And people in the movie, it might be because they feel a sort of blame. Like it, the movie alludes to people. Theo talks about he was dating a girl who had some weird kind of religious fervor for punishing herself because she thought the infertility was from God or something. And so you can kind of see how the movie shifts it, like the idea that it's women's fault almost. So that's actually, that's really interesting. I was just thinking about this when Trevor was making the point about would it be better to have an 18-year-old woman or a 50-year-old woman on your ship to another planet and you start thinking about the fertility because, or even my point about a a, a female child versus a male child being born into this world because um, at the end of the day, what's actually really interesting is that male infertility is just as tied to... Uh, age as female infertility and it's in fact uh tied to it more so than female infertility um men's sperm counts go down faster there's a lot of health problems tied with uh male sperm counts etc but for the most part in our society we overlook that that's very rarely a part of the message whatsoever uh and we very much view it as a man can be a father at any age but a woman has this very small window and so uh, that your your point about the difference in the book versus the movie is a poignant one. There are two big things I think um, that we've been been talking about, and that's this infertility aspect. Which when I was watching it, and this is the first time I've seen I've seen this movie. I immediately thought of The Handmaid's Tale. Now I know infertility, like because well I. I've recently been watching the new Handmaid's Tale season, but infertility and fertility is like obviously a big discussion in that show and them like viewing women as a resource. And like, if you can get pregnant, you're like put on a pedestal in their society and all that, all that stuff. So I was like going back and forth with Landry and saying, I was like, it's interesting that infertility is in a lot of these like dystopia, sci-fi, futuristic, whether it be shows or movies, And then the other thing we've been kind of skirting around that I kind of was hoping we could dive into a little bit more is, you know, I'm, I'm not the most religious person in the world. Um, but even I picked up on like the religious undertones of the movie. But can someone explain this, this idea of like it being a nativity story? The Christian myth or the Christian story begins with a, uh, a type of birth, right? Um, at least. Well, not so much in Mark, but in Matthew, Luke, and John. So, and as Kat pointed out, uh, the having key in the manger in the barn, um, uh, when she reveals her pregnancy is, is very big. It's interesting because, uh, there's that joke she makes too, where she about whether or not she knew who the father was. Um, and at first she says, like, you know, oh, is this going to be a miracle birth? And it's like, no, no, she, there was a bunch of guys and she didn't know which one. Um, and here, I guess that the, the, the analogy to Theo would be Joseph to some extent. Um, 
or Joseph was not actually the father of Jesus. If you you know get to the details of this, uh, but he uh, shepherded and and raised Jesus uh, in the way that Theo is. So it has these sort of nativity aspects to it because such births are world changing at the end of the day, and that, and that's and that's I think what what is going on here. Yeah, um, there's a lot of other uh, religious aspects, right? And I think like it goes beyond. There's that whole discussion we talked about a little bit about faith, uh, which can come in many different forms. Uh, but there's also just like so many illusions throughout, including the fact, you know, the fishes, they call themselves the fishes. Um, and this wasn't totally clear, but I, I wondered throughout if that was meant to be uh, a reference to the early Christians calling themselves the fishes. Uh, so that was definitely of interest to me. And of course, like they are also very obsessed with this. Um, you know, the one fertile woman with the miraculous birth, uh, that's, she's sort of at the center of what they're doing in, in the course of the movie, not in general. Um, but there's all sorts of things. There's references to religious terrorism. You see so much faith and lack of faith all come out of, uh, all come out of this crisis. People are both turning into faith and moving away from it. And people are also using that faith to justify any number of uh, acts, both positive and negative. I was also just thinking, and this kind of just popped into my head as we were talking about it. I didn't think about when I was watching the movie, but I, it's not necessarily a nativity in illusion, but I think there is a, a definitely biblical imagery once the baby has been born and people are coming after it in the story of Moses. They are literally rushing to get this baby into a boat and send it down a river to where it can eventually be safe and eventually bring hope, hopefully, to the population. So it, it, I think there's also that biblical imagery there as well. I also thought of after Christ was born, King Herod killing everyone. Yeah, Herod and the massacre of the innocents. Yeah, which is a par- which is explicitly a, a explicitly a parallel to Moses. Yeah. So one thing that really struck me in the film I'd love to chat about is immigration in it because the first i watched this film a few times now and the first time i watched it i assumed that all the fugitives what they call refugees i I assume that they're all from like the middle east because they're all speaking different languages and you can't really understand them but it's one of those films where that's just kind of implanted in your head because of all the news and when you start looking a little closer i noticed one of the first guys who talks to them when they get into bex hill he's irish and then I started to realize that there was like, I think a Chinese family at one point that Theo runs into when they're taking cover from the tank or something like that. And so you start to realize like, oh my God, no, wait, it really is all of the world. It is, it's not just what you usually think of. It's, it's everyone. And it makes you start to think how we've treated other people in the Western world. If it was us, what would happen? The director actually talks about how uh, that was one of his goals with the film, right? He, he feel he feels, and I think he's right in this, that a lot of times when we think about desperation, when we think about refugee crises, when we think about these kinds of things, uh, especially the way that they're uh, depicted in pop culture, um, a lot of times we see it as sort of like this Western world, this Western wealthy world, and then everyone else. And um, so that was interesting to me. I actually, in one of the very first scenes in the film, um, you see Theo and you see these cages uh, that are just like in the streets of London, uh, where they're they're clearly throwing the um, illegal immigrants. You hear these messages about illegal immigrants and how terrible they are throughout SPSAs. Um, 
But one of the first things I noticed was uh, there was an old woman speaking German in the cage. Um, and then I noticed a lot of Germans uh, who were grouped in this throughout. I saw when we were in Bexhell, the uh, refugee camp, I saw French flags. Uh, so that that was really interesting to me. There's certainly there's a lot of Roma people. Um, and the the other thing that the director does to try to break down these uh the stereotypes we have about how um the world works which countries could actually be afflicted by these issues and which countries are somehow quote unquote safe from them um he actively tried to make london in the film look like mexico city and he was t- uh, so like so he talks about how um he wanted it to look like mexico city and have this gritty reality and bring back um, you have to realize also this film came out in 2006, which is right around the peak of a lot of the drug war uh, murders happening in Mexico City in Mexico. And so uh, that was sort of at the forefront of his mind as well, just as he's setting up this whole scene. So showing how um, the global interconnectedness of of all of these crises where there's really not this like safe space away from it. And I think the immigration is a huge part of that. Um, this nationalism is a huge part of that. And then honestly, the way that the film ends the closing credits is this fantastic song. Um, I didn't know it uh, previously. I guess I should have, but it's apparently a John Lennon song and it's um, we don't know. We don't care what flag you're waving. Uh, we don't even want to know your name um, and, and free the people now are basically the key lines there. And that like that, I think, is the thesis, at least around the immigration question. I think it's really interesting that it's life imitates art again, because when you're saying that on the train and stuff, you hear all these announcements. Those announcements are on the tube in London today. And they like came in. I was I remember them coming in like for the first time and hearing it when I used to visit. So like it really I it was just really bizarre to realize that that used to not be the case and now is. And now we all like, just think about airports, how many different messages you get, how often there's so much security. You start to realize how much of a not dangerous world you're living in, but a world racked by fear. A world that is made to look dangerous as a way of taking control almost. Yeah. And of course, I mean, given the pandemic year, uh, this is particularly interesting because, if we think back to last spring, uh, the, the idea of sort of Australia basically did and has shut down, like closed its borders entirely. My brother lives there. And he actually can't even leave. Uh, some, some of the countries like Taiwan or something like this, like that was their first move, uh, was, was, yeah, my parents are in India and right now, uh, the, the uh, options to leave are very limited. Exactly. <laughs> the first move is to basically be like, all right, shut the borders, uh, don't have intercourse with the rest of the world. And then, you know, maybe at the end of the day, you know, we'll be New Zealand did this too, because the islands have an advantage in this. And that's part of this being England, right? Like you, you pointed out, Kat, that like there are Germans and French because those borders you can just walk across unless you, you build a wall mm-hmm. on them. Islands have this advantage and be like, we can be like the one place as the whole world does, you know, goes, goes to hell will be the one place, but we, we can only maintain this. There's always the immigration myth if we keep these people out. Uh, and so you see all this kind of stuff that became extremely relevant, not just in 2016, with the Trump administration, but then became relevant again with the coronavirus pandemic. Well, I think it also ties back to uh, the fertility thing, right? Because I, I found it interesting 
that in this world um, of total infertility, they're still having this massive anti-immigration sentiment uh, where we kind of see this in our own modern world, right? Uh, we have these welfare states that are built up on this idea that every generation will produce more children than the previous generation. Trevor, you talked about this already. And of course, we're not doing that. And there's so much consternation. There's so many think pieces and things like that about, well, why aren't people having more children? They should be having more children because they've got this pyramid scheme essentially built upon that. And uh, one thing that libertarians often bring up is, well, you know, a lot of these things could be fixed if you would let in more immigrants. But the same people who uh, a lot of times want to reduce uh reduce women's access to markets and things like that in order to force them to have more children, uh, you know, for the nation, they are just as angrily against the idea of immigrants filling those roles. And it was interesting to me to see that parallel in this sort of like alternate universe in which uh, having children wasn't even an option. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Trevor, Kat, Paul, what else has been occupying your time that you think our audience might enjoy? Um, I'll start. Uh, the two things that, that have most recently occupied me are uh, so the show in Invincible on Amazon Prime, uh, which is an animated superhero show uh, that is very, very good and just just forewarning it's very violent um even even animation uh it, it can make you a little bit almost queasy but it's very very well done uh and in terms of books uh the most recent book i read uh, is jeff tweedy who is the lead singer of wilco uh and was in a band called uncle tupelo he has a book out called how to write one song which is sort of a meditation on creativity and the meaning of songwriting that is exceptional uh, i highly recommend it if if even if you're not a songwriter or, or want to be songwriter just as, as a meditation on creativity yeah so i'll go um i have been watching sex in the city which is a show uh that was super super popular around the love. time love it okay so i actually hate this show <laughs> really <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. a hot take too, there. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate oh, it too. Fingers. I hate it too. Oh. I hate it too. So. It's a terrible I, it's a terrible I love it, but not because it's good. Yeah, same. <laughs> I love it. It's like the same reason I would watch Grey's Anatomy. Okay, I hate that show too. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you have to bring your best down? Why do you have to bring Grey's Anatomy down? There's no need. <laughs> I'll tell you what, 17 well, seasons of Grey's Anatomy is enough. <laughs> Yeah, seriously though, <laughs> I hate it. Saving it's lives, so the lifetime. But um, early, early two thousands, basically the same period. The Children of Men, a little bit earlier. Sex in the City comes out. It's huge. I hated it. I couldn't stand it because of these like terrible, like stereotype tropes of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Uh, all of these things that um, really, I mean, they're just like ridiculous ideas and it's been so i've always sort of meant to go back and watch it because it's such a big pop culture phenomenon that i think uh really shaped our culture in many ways and so i'm doing that now and it's fascinating because it's been uh i hate to say this but almost 20 years now and uh yeah it's it's crazy 
been almost 20 years since Sex in the City. And uh, it's fascinating to see how much our culture has changed over time because there's just all of these assumptions that they talk about, whether it's stuff like, um, you know, men could never respect a woman who earns more money than them. Or there's there's assumptions on things like, okay, a woman can't, if a woman wants to get married, they have a whole conversation about this. Uh, she has to rent. She cannot buy her own property because no man would want to marry her if she owns property because it throws off the balance of power. And just all of these, like all sorts of like weird gendered um almost like combative attitudes uh, towards what it means to be a man or a woman and looking for a relationship, a partnership um, that like listening to it now, it's just like our culture has moved so far ahead from what at the time was viewed as this like very progressive show. And so that's kind of been my, uh, my positive message coming out of sex in the city. Uh, I'm terrible because I just don't really watch a huge amount of TV. So all the TV I watch is like to detoxify after like a day. Survivor and like catfish reality uh, TV. Do not. Don't you dare mess with Survivor's name. Survivor's Survivor brilliant. is no, It's a brilliant amazing. show. But I have like, I, I, I watched, I, when Trevor said I watched Invincible, I was like, that was my one show I could say. That was my one thing. I have nothing to recommend. I mean, I'm clearly still stuck in like the 90s from every time we do this. So that's the cool thing these days, though. So I've been rewatching. I watched the new version of RoboCop. That's my one thing, but I really love the old version, but I'm, I'm not like, watching it at the moment or absorbing it. Aaron has been trying to get us to cover RoboCop. And Trevor, didn't you Absolutely. suggest that yeah, one too? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. classic. We should. We should. <laughs> uh, well, I guess for me, the only new stuff I've been doing, I just started reading Firefly Lane. Um, that came out as a Netflix show, like I want to say a few months ago now. And I already watched the show and then realized it was a book, which I hate doing it in that order, but here we are. And then the, there was, oh, um, I watched the, there's like a new horror thriller film on Netflix with Amanda Seafried. I think that's how you say her last name. Things Unseen and Heard or things heard and unseen. I don't know. But um, it's kind of your typical horror thriller, you know. It's in the 80s. The family moves into this big farmhouse, and they like, you know, the house is haunted. But it was actually uh, pretty good and had some more, um, more layers to it than just like demons jumping out of closets type thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of all I've been up to. I have been playing more video games recently. I finished The Last of Us, which I believe I recommended on the, la uh, the last episode. Huge parallels to Children of Men. Huge parallels. That's exactly yes. what I was going to say, is I'm now playing the second one and watching it, playing this game, and then happening to watch this movie. It is undeniable how much Neil Druckmann took from this movie. And he has specifically said so. Um, so you can see, like, it is undeniable the parallels both in plot and aesthetics you're like sneaking behind cars like when clive owen is trying to steal the keys and get the car jump started the opening menu to the second game is a boat like lilting on water that is literally a mirror image of the final shots of children of men it is crazy and honestly it's it's so good 
play the first one. It's really good. But make sure you play the second one because I think it is even better. It really complicates the story. The mechanics are even better. It's a beautiful game. Uh, highly recommend The Last so of Us you're, you're still in the middle of the second one because the second one is... is- uh, I am. I think I'm towards the end. Um, I have made the, the sort of big turn in the story. Okay. It, it, it's uh, insanely heart-wrenching. Like... I've, I've never okay, wanted good. to not play a game and finish a game at the same time. Like I didn't want to keep <laughs> playing the game because it was too much, but I had to finish it. Um, I'm also listening to a podcast called Stay Away from Matthew McGill that is produced by Pineapple Street Media, who did uh, Missing Richard Simmons uh, and a few other you know sort of big podcasts that is sort of, I think, influenced by uh, a series, if you listen to S-Town, uh, which was a production of Serial by Brian Reed. Um, just this mysterious figure that fell into this guy's life and moved into a small town and nobody seemed to like him. And he had all these sort of big fish outlandish stories and everybody thought he was faking it. And it turns out a lot of them were true. And I'm, you're sort of going to explore what happened to this gentleman. And uh, it sounds really, really interesting. And I like it so far. And I played the board game Sagrada for the first time uh, about a week ago, which is a fun little dice pooling puzzle game where you're trying to make patterns and little uh, like challenges of uh, making like a stained glass window out of all these different multicolored dice. And it's really simple and fun and easy to play. And I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock related content and to connect with us is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.Libertarianism.org.